Minnow Middle got you down. Crush your sugar cravings with delicious all-natural Bossa Bars from Menopause. Created to help women manage weight loss and energy during the pause. Try them at BossaBars.com and save 10% with code HOTCOOL10. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. Today we have on Dr. Jewel Kling. Bridget and I really wanted to do an episode where we kind of had the questions that you want to ask your gynecologist and the answers to them. Because a lot of women email us and say, I asked my gynecologist and they just didn't have the answer. They didn't know. Or I had to do research on my own. And Dr. Kling has been with the Mayo Clinic for over 11 years. She's an associate professor of medicine. She is a woman's health internist with a focus on menopause and female sexual health. The list could go on. She's associate chair of equity, inclusion, and diversity for the Department of Medicine. And she's also chairwoman of the Division of Women's Health Internal Medicine. So if anyone is going to be able to answer those gynecological questions for us. It is going to be Dr. Kling. And she was just absolutely amazing. We were we learned so much. It was it was incredible. We learned so many new things, but also questions that so many women have asked that I never really knew the answer to. And the big one was how long should you stay on hormone replacement? And she calls it. Uh, menopause hormone therapy. She kind of put some right. new terms out there, menopause hormone therapy. And she talks about the differences too, about if you um, go into menopause early, if you've had surgical menopause, about the hormone replacement needs in that area. And then she talks about if you're a person who naturally has gone through menopause, what you can expect there and how long you should be on it. Talks a lot about the age of 60 being kind of like the point where you start to reevaluate things and decide if this is something that you want to keep or what you want to do about it. If you are having what she calls menopause hormone therapy. So if you're having that and you reach the age of 60, should you go off of it? Should you stay on it? And it was the first time I've really seen that addressed. So it was really exactly. with that. It yes. was just, it was like we had our own doctor's appointment right there. Oh, and there was nothing she couldn't gosh. answer. I mean, obviously she's an expert in the field, but she had said to us at the end that we asked just about every question that women ask when we kind of bombarded her with them. Yes. But, <laughs> but she was every question, gracious. yeah, she was yeah. incredibly gracious. Um, yes. And she pretty much said that we asked every question that her patients want to know about. And we feel that our listeners want to know about. So if you have a girlfriend going through menopause or perimenopause or having a hysterectomy or went through early menopause, let her know about this episode. Let her know about the podcast. Email us with questions at hotflasheskooltopics at gmail.com. We will get those questions answered for you either on an episode or we can email you back. It really, you know, we'll, we'll try to get those questions answered. We also want to remind you guys that we are in March Menopause Madness, co-sponsored along with Woman S Products and my sister's perimenopause app. We are teaming up to educate and make women feel that they're less alone in menopause. So how are we doing that? We are doing that with Monday IG Lives. This week, we actually have on Better Sex 
with mm-hmm. Abby Metcalf. You are not going to want to minimize that one. And we are also doing giveaways. So this week's giveaway is skincare. And if you go on our website, hufflashescooltopics.com, you will see a way to enter for the giveaway. It is a set of Womaness products. And if you haven't tried Womaness products, guys, you need to check them out. You can find them at target.com and a plethora of other places, but they are products that work and we are really excited to partner with them. Bridget and I use a lot of the products. Yeah. Neck cream. Love the neck cream. Out, you know, out whatever spot they <laughs> and out then I, out I D spot <laughs> D spot and I like the eye cream as well. I mean, there's so many great products that they have. I'm actually really enjoying their Plump It Up, which is the new one, but it's got retinol in it. And it's, it's got it in there. It's got it's it in got there. It. I'm gonna, and I got to get it. Yes, <laughs> it's yes. So check that out on our website. We also have brands we love. It's listed in there as well. So we are going to let Doctor Kling start answering our questions. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today we have on Dr. Jewel Kling, who, as we mentioned in the bio, is an associate professor of medicine. She works at the Mayo Clinic. We are just so excited to talk to you about hormone therapy today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to you both for creating this platform to talk about, you know, topics that many women don't talk about and destigmatizing things like menopause and hormone therapy. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we appreciate your time. We know you're extremely busy, but you know, we want to get the word out for women that there's options and you don't have to be afraid necessarily of HRT. It's just because you've heard about all this stuff from the early 2000s. And it's just such an important conversation and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. So there were a couple of things. I, I mean, there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about, but um, with menopause hormone therapy. I know you talk about early use of hormone therapy and later use. Can we start a little bit? I don't think we talk enough about postmenopausal women. And how does hormone therapy play a role for postmenopausal women? Yeah. Um, well, and maybe we can start just briefly with some definitions and you may be aware of these and your listeners may be as well, but, um, even, you know, we did a study looking at residents knowledge of these and some of the the basics are, aren't taught very often. So that, that can be helpful. Um, you know, we define menopause clinically as 12 months past the last menstrual cycle. Um, although hormones can be suggestive of menopause or um, uh, perimenopause, that definition really relies on when the last menstrual cycle s- stopped. Um, uh, the average age of menopause in the U.S. is about 51 years of age. Um, and so when we're talking about like normal menopause or postmenopause, that's really that group of women that we're talking about. And our most recent guidelines based on evaluation of the previous kind of sub-analysis of the Women's Health Initiative but other studies too shows that for women less than age 60 or within 10 years from their last menstrual cycle, that the benefits of hormone therapy largely outweigh the risks. Now, the other group of women that is really important to talk about hormone replacement therapy, which I'm calling it a little bit differently there. Um, I think you, you did that too really appropriately that menopausal hormone therapy is when we're treating symptoms of menopause in that kind of natural menopause or normal menopause area. Um, but for women that have early or premature menopause. So menopause less than 45 is considered early and before 40 is considered premature. Um, Those women really need hormone replacement 
treatment therapy until the nat normal age of menopause or the average age of menopause, 51 years of age, to help prevent a lot of long-term health consequences like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinsonism, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, sexual dysfunction. Um, and that's not just for treating symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. It's really to prevent those kind of long-term consequences. And, and women in that case, are these women that maybe would have had to have a hysterectomy or surgical menopause or any other cause like that? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And that is a big group of women that, that I see in my practice are, are those women that have say, for example, really, really significant endometriosis, and they're kind of debilitated by their endometriosis, so make the decision with their you know, gynecologist to pursue a hysterectomy and have their ovaries removed. Um, and if they do that before 45, um, yeah, those women do need um, hormone replacement therapy there are other causes of early menopause, something called premature ovarian insufficiency, which can be caused by various other things. Um, and if any of your listeners are hearing and they're like, oh my gosh, I haven't had a period in this amount of time, I'd encourage uh, you know you to go talk to your doctor because um, there's other like testing and things that we would just need to make sure are not cause, you know, contributing to your early menopause as well as getting on hormone replacement therapy, you know? <laughs> You know, and that made me think of a question when women start going through even natural menopause and they have suffered from endometriosis for most of their life, does that ex get exacerbated during menopause? Does it, is it a factor? That's, that's a great question. Typically, it's uh, thought to be the opposite, that because endometriosis tends to be a hormonal, hormonally driven process, that as women enter into menopause, many times their symptoms improve. That is good to know. That's we very always, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you got you got to celebrate the positive things too, right? When you're going through the the change, going through menopause, and and then you know uh, acknowledge the the negatives or the opportunities for um, treatment. Do you also find, and this is a personal question for me because I've now not had a period for three months. Yay. Woohoo. Woohoo. <laughs> but I've noticed that the symptoms were a lot worse before I stopped getting my periods. Like my symptoms seem to be a little better I, over the last I'll have three to months, agree like with that. migraines yeah. and mood swings. Is that normal? Uh, that's a tough question. What is normal? You know, for right, each true. woman, it's going to, it's going to be different. Um, but I think, you know, what you're bringing up is this idea that during, uh, perimenopause, you can certainly have all the symptoms that we classically think of during menopause. And I think, you know, many of us women, and maybe I'll just speak for myself. I don't know. You go through your childbearing years. You're like in your late thirties, you're busy with your work and your kids. And then you enter your forties. And it's not on your radar that, gosh, menopause is right around the corner. And it's not atypical to start having perimenopausal symptoms, like in your early to mid-40s, oftentimes like heavier periods, lighter periods. But it can be what you're talking about, hot flashes, night sweats, irritability, sleep issues. And for some women, it's those during those perimenopausal times that it's, it's, it is much rougher. And, and it may be because, you know, when we look at the hormones and what they're doing during that perimenopause period, it is like a roll roller coaster. One day can be like this, the other day can be like that. And, and so you're feeling those large swings in hormones and then postmenopausal. So once you've, you know, finished, um, 
really having a period, um, your hormones stabilize. And so I wonder if that's what you're feeling is instead of having these swings, now they're stabilized. You may still have hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, sleep issues, but it's not like changing from day to day. Mm-hmm. And then you're probably feeling just a little bit better, right? Because sure, things aren't just going all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And I found it really interesting. I think um, when I was reading over some of your notes, you're probably one of the first people I've uh, seen notes on that really talk about what to do or how many years to be on menopause um, and yeah, menopause hormone therapy. Like I, I was, because I am on um, menopause hormone therapy and okay. I'm 54 and I think yeah. I've been on it about four years. So that was a really, can you talk a little bit about what you find and how long through the studies yeah. that you've done that are, that have been done are recommended? Yeah, no, it's a really important question and a challenging question to answer because although we have more clarity now about the safety of hormone therapy when it's initiated early in menopause, we just don't have as much research to help guide us on how long women need to continue hormone therapy. What complicates the picture too is that more recent data or you know, research shows that on average, um, the symptoms of menopause last for like seven and a half to 10 years. And I always make sure to say to my patients, like, I'm not sharing that with you to bum you out because that's a long time. But if anything, to raise the importance of us talking about a treatment plan, because toughing something out for seven to 10 years is just not okay. Um, But that would mean, so if you're going through menopause at 51 and it's on average seven to 10 years, which could include those perimenopausal um, years too, that towards your late fifties is when you would be expected to, to not have symptoms. And so typically as my patients approach 50, I'll start talking about a plan to taper down on the hormone therapy. And if you come off the hormone therapy and you're not having symptoms, then you don't need to continue it. Um, But if you continue to have symptoms, then it would make sense to continue it. And just on an annual basis, talk about, you know, risk benefit. Um, And so what that looks like is say you had something happen like a blood clot, you know, um, it may mean that you have to consider something else like coming off or transitioning to something non-hormonal or, you know, an abnormal uh, mammogram, something like that, that may factor into that decision. But if you're staying healthy and you're exercising and eating well, if you need to continue the hormone therapy, then that can be a decision you, you know, make with your physician question that I have is that we have several um, listeners who email us and say, you know, I went to the doctor, I'm starting to have symptoms of perimenopause, and they handed me an anxiety medication, mm. an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are like, that's not what I want to take. I, I want yeah. my symptoms. Why is it that um, a lot of women get handed an anxiety medication or an antidepressant for their first noted symptoms? Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you asked that question cuz I, you know, putting myself in that patient's shoes would think, oh, they just think I'm anxious or it's all in my head, right? Where I don't think that's the intention, although I can't talk about the intention for all physicians or uh healthcare professionals, but uh, what I suspect is going on is that we have good um evidence that shows that SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors also called antidepressants um are are beneficial at treating hot flashes and night sweats and can treat some of those other menopausal symptoms. Um, In fact, we have an FDA-approved antidepressant called paroxetine. The brand name's Brisdell when we use it for menopausal symptoms. 
Um, and there's other SSRIs and other antidepressants that have been studied in this realm too. And so um, I, my suspicion is that uh, healthcare profession, professionals are still nervous about prescribing menopausal hormone therapy, which I want to make sure and, and say that it's the most effective treatment for hot flashes and night sweats. It's the best treatment that we can use for hot flashes and night sweats. So if we're looking for the best, yes, hormone therapy, if it's safe for that patient, should be offered. But because of a fear, because of myths, because of lack of education, may reach for that antidepressant, maybe because they're more familiar with it. And now they know, hey, this is FDA approved for hot flashes and night sweats. Here you go, take this medication. Um, and we, that survey I was telling you about where we looked at um, family medicine, internal medicine, OB-GYN residents at 22 different centers across the U.S. In fact, we found a, found a big percentage of uh, training physicians would offer an antidepressant first for a healthy women without contraindications that had hot flashes and night sweats. So I think that's probably what those, those women are experiencing. That describes what happened to me exactly. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. When I went in, when I was ex uh, experiencing hot flashes, really, really bad, like mm. five times an hour, just drenched everything. And I was about 47 at the time. And I was offered the, um, I guess it was Effexor or maybe the generic yeah. form of Effexor. Ben vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. It was... It really wasn't doing much. And mm. finally, I did do um, the, the hormone. And I, hormone. I believe they started with progesterone because I was still having cycles. Oh, okay. And is, I don't know if that's something normal that they do. And then when I stopped having cycles, then they did the estrogen, progesterone. I didn't know if that was something normal. Well, maybe it was the other way around that they started you on estrogen and didn't add the progesterone because you were still cycling. Because the, the progesterone's um, used to prevent endometrial cancer. Anytime we give estrogen without progesterone, there's a risk of the lining of the uterus building up and, you know, be becoming cancer, if you will. Um, so the progesterone counteracts that. But if you're still menstruating, like you're still perimenopausal, you may be having a bleed, you know, sloughing your endometrium. So you may not need the end the progesterone. Okay. I can't, you know, it's been a few years, but yeah, I no do worries. know the last, my last visit, she said, you've got to make sure. And I do, you take that progesterone. Yeah. And she did tell me about the cancer risks, you know, yeah, you've got it to is take important. the progesterone. Yes. What about for women who have, um, Alzheimer's in their family. I'm, that's an excellent question too. Um, and I, I think I can answer that pretty easily, but do you mind if I just say something real quickly sure. about the, the SSRIs or the antidepressants? Um, I just want to take the opportunity to, to not minimize those treatments um, and their availability because there are a lot of women that can't take menopausal hormone therapy, um, breast cancer survivors. I just saw a patient this week who'd recently had a stroke. And so it is really beneficial that we have treatment options that um, do effectively reduce hot flashes and night sweats. Um, so just wanted to, to put that point out there too, but your question about Alzheimer's is a great one. You know, the Women's Health Initiative with that big study back in the 1990s, early 2000s that shut early, um, found that women that were older that started hormone therapy had an increased risk of Alzheimer's. 
Now that information has kind of permeated media and everything. And so I think a lot of women are concerned if I start hormone therapy, I'm going to get Alzheimer's. Um, but there have been studies since that time that show if women start hormone therapy early in menopause, that it doesn't appear to negatively impact cognition. And we don't see those same kind of relationships. Um, in fact, there's some kind of promising data that suggests there may be some benefit, meaning starting hormone therapy in, uh, early in menopause, meaning under age 60 or within 10 years from the last menstrual cycle may be preventative. Now, we don't have enough data to say that, you know, women should start it to prevent Alzheimer's, but again, it, it's very, I think, reassuring. And what about uh, women who have some um, cardiovascular issues, either family history or have existing, you know, high blood pressure or other issues? Really, when we look at the statistics, most of us women have some, you know, chronic condition like hypertension or elevated cholesterol. And so the reality is we do need to know um, how those interact with hormone therapy. Um, and it depends. Um, each woman is going to need like an individual evaluation to see what that means for her her uh, risk or her health. If somebody's had a heart attack, probably you're going to be talking about a non-hormonal option. Um, but say somebody comes in early in menopause, hot flashes and night sweats with hypertension or high blood pressure. There's formulations of hormone therapy that appear safe and don't impact the blood pressure, like a transdermal or kind of non-oral estrogen. Um, if anything, that may benefit her blood pressure because I'm sure the hot flashes and night sweats, if she's experiencing what you were experiencing, Bridget, like five times an hour, you know, has got to be contributing negatively to her blood pressure. Um, many times what we'll do is do like an assessment of cardiovascular risk. So get a cholesterol panel, maybe get another study like a CT to look at the coronary arteries. Um, and if those look well, then the, the risk is, is low and women can consider hormone therapy. But really it's an individualized, you know, evaluation for each, each person. When, they, when a woman comes in and it is so personal for every woman, if mm -hmm. they go to a do their doctor and they don't feel like they're being heard or seen, what would you suggest they do next? Go on to the North American Menopause Society or what options they have? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, would be a great option. The North American Menopause Society um, certified practitioners all um, have a really good understanding of the current science and data and um, understand those implications. And so uh, the NAMS has a really easy way to search for uh, physicians or advanced practitioners in their community. Gosh, it's challenging because you want you want them to be able to maintain that relationship with their existing physician or APP, and uh, maybe even the first step is is sharing some of that information. Like, hey, I listened to this podcast, or you know, here's some information from the North American Menopause Society website. Love for you to look at it. But I know that's that's challenging with the kind of hierarchical re relationships sometimes you feel with your um, physician or APP. So the NAMS provider is a great option too. That's so good to know because we get so many questions and comments from, from women in those situations where they feel like they are not being heard or even where a doctor will absolutely refuse to prescribe any kind of a hormone it won't really do the testing that's necessary for it. I mean, I've heard mm -hmm. women from that and it's really surprising, but it's great to know that you can go to NAM's website and yeah. look for that in your area. That is yeah. fantastic. 
and what's, you know, there's a lot of really crummy things that have come out of COVID or us living through a COVID pandemic, but there have been some positives. And one of those that we've found in our practice that we've implemented regularly is the virtual visit. So even, you know, if women don't have access to somebody in their community, say they live in a rural area or, you know, some place that just doesn't have menopause uh, practitioners, um, considering a, a virtual visit with one of the NAMS providers would be an option too. Yeah, if you were able to do that, and I'm not sure how this works, if they need a blood work, can you arrange to go mm -hmm. to a lab? And have mm -hmm. that sent mm -hmm. to that. That's yeah, that's right. yeah. And and in my opinion, I think what works best is collaborating with that person's primary care physician. So, um, and it, it is a teaching opportunity, right? Like we've already talked about that. Many of us don't learn about menopause and training. That's what our study showed too. So, if if I could collaborate with somebody's primary care physician and share some of these resources, and then perhaps they're able to take over that prescription or talk about labs, do the exam, those type of things, um, then you're, you know, killing two birds with one stone, helping that woman get the care that she needs, but also maybe helping future by um, providing some education. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between um, hormone therapy and bioidentical therapy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, bioidentical just means that the hormone looks like the same hormone our body makes. So estradiol is 17 beta estradiol. That's the estrogen that the, the ovaries make. Um, and really, it's been used mostly as a marketing term post Women's Health Initiative um, to support the use of like the custom compounded bioidentical therapies um, and been labeled as a, a safer option compared to the traditional hormones that we use. When in reality, we have FDA approved bioidentical hormones and they're all similar. So the safety profile is similar. Just because you do something that's custom compounded doesn't mean it doesn't come with risks um, and kind of vice versa. Does that make sense? Realize the yeah. bioidenticals were FDA approved. It was, I was, yeah. I felt like I've been some told are, a lot in some, okay. Some are and some are not. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So they're like estradiol is an FDA approved um, hormone that we have in FDA approved formulations like a transdermal patch, um, a pill, a vaginal ring, a spray, and a gel. Um, but then there's some hormones like uh, estrone that's not FDA approved, but that may be, you know, compounded in something like biased or triest in a custom compound in um, pharmacy. Um, there was a... a kind of update that came out recently from the National uh, Science uh, Academy that looked at the safety of the custom compounded bioidentical therapies and found that there's just not enough research that supports those, um, both the safety and the efficacy. And so it's in, I think, most women's best interest to do an FDA-approved bioidentical therapy if that's what they're interested in. And many people thought that bioidenticals were just compound and not FDA approved. Yeah. Yeah. FDA. So it's good to yeah. know that there are options like that. A lot of times estrogen is recommended in patches or creams. What is the problem with oral estrogen? Um, I guess there's nothing necessarily wrong with oral. Um, it's just that when uh, hormones are taken orally, they get processed through the liver first, which is called the first pass hepatic effect. And that can lead to um, kind of more clotting factors and things like that. So if you do the transdermal or the non-oral route, then you bypass that and it's associated with less of those risks. So if somebody has things that may 
put them at higher risk for blood clot. Say they're obese or they are a smoker or they have a family history of blood clot, you know, doing like a lower dose transdermal estrogen would be safer in that context. The other thing to your question earlier, Bridget, the kind of duration of treatment, um, if I think a woman may need hormone therapy longer, she's, you know, considering that starting with a transdermal or non-oral route means that, you know, as you approach your late 50s, early 60s, you're going to be on the safer formulation that you could probably continue if needed. That's very good to know. And, and I know you mentioned too, if you decide to go off, is it something that you need to do gradually or do you just stop doing it? What should be done when you yeah. decide to go off of them? You, you can do either. The studies that looked at both ways didn't show much difference, but most of the time um, I'll recommend a taper with my patients. I think it's just easier to, you know, even just to get on board and to, to slowly wean off and, and see how things go as opposed to just stopping at cold turkey. Have you noticed um, changes in the conversation with your patients over the last few years? Do women seem to be more educated about menopause or are they still, you know, there are so many of us, especially in our generation, that didn't even realize we were in perimenopause and mm-hmm. then had an aha moment years later. But are you noticing mm-hmm. a conversation change or is it still kind of behind the times? That's a great question. And I don't know. I, I would... I. I think we still have a lot of opportunities for improvement in education. Um, yeah. And, and to, to be honest, that's, well, I find one of the most exciting and fulfilling parts of, of my job is being able to answer that question for somebody that comes in thinking, Hey, I can't take hormones because my mom had breast cancer at age 80. Like, well, actually, you know, you can. Um, so although that's great that I can share that information with them, I think it, uh, highlights your point that there's still a lot of misinformation out there that hopefully through amazing podcasts, like what you both are doing, you know, we'll get the word out there. So women know, um, what resources they have available to them. I think that's so true. I did not realize I was, I didn't know what perimenopause was when I mm-hmm. was in perimenopause. Right. I didn't know what that word was. Um, I was already in it when I realized what it was. Yeah. And also there's so much I did not know before we started this podcast oh. that I have learned in the past two years oh, wow. by talking to people like you That's great. and I'm still learning. Like right. I'm learning we from learn you today. Time we talk to yes. Yeah. Another interesting thing is all of a sudden now on social media, on commercials, you are seeing all these products that say they can treat hot flashes and cool topics naturally. It's over the counter. You know, it's, a you know, amazing tea you can take. It's all these things. When kind of, overwhelmed all of a sudden when they come in do you say to them like what do you say to them try it first or don't listen (laughs) well uh yeah and I think it just demonstrates that women are desperate for something to help with their symptoms and want to do something that they feel safe and I don't know something about how it's presented just makes it sound well it's over the counter it's got to be safe right and I don't know if that's always the case but what I can tell you is when we look at the the research that there's not really many if any over the counter supplements that are uh 
effective or really better than placebo at improving hot flashes and night sweats. So many of the medications like black cohosh and things like that have been studied. And while they do improve hot flashes and night sweats, they don't do so more so than taking a placebo pill. And so if a patient's taking it and noticing improvement and they're not having any side effects from it and they can afford the medication, you know, oftentimes I won't have them stop it, but I will let them know that there's more effective treatments that are also safe for them to consider. With the black co is the cohosh. I want to make sure. I'm not sure it was cohosh or cohosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've heard good and bad things about that, that there aren't enough tests out there yet to see if it actually can affect. Cause there are some supplements that can have a negative yeah. effect on your body. And it'd be great to have more research in that area, but the research that we do have, like I said, doesn't demonstrate the effectiveness. It, there is also some risks, particularly to the liver and things with that supplement. So um, if anything, you know, if somebody, if a woman's considering starting something like that, make sure they talk to their doctor to make sure it doesn't interact with an, another medication that they're on or, you know, cause something based on their underlying health conditions. Um, but really, you know, maybe that opens the opportunity to find that menopause pause practitioner that can talk to them about truly effective treatment so that they can get relief from the symptoms that they're having. And like you said, there's telehealth now out there. Yeah. Have the conversations and we've worked with some companies that do it and, and they're really just trying to get the word out. Yeah. I guess one kind of cautionary tale about the, the telehealth um, is making sure that it's a reliable kind of institution or physician that you're seeing. Because if it is backed by some product that it's all about profit and you're not having the proper safety evaluation that you need, um, then then that can be potentially, you know, worrisome. So if it's a, an institution like Mayo, we offer uh, virtual visits. Um, if we deem that you need to have a physical, like a physical exam, we'll certainly set that up or make sure your primary care does that. Um, Cause oftentimes things like a physical exam are important when we're doing um, evaluation of like cardiovascular risk and things like that. So. Is there any type of accreditation that people should look for when they're looking for online health? I didn't, you know. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think making sure that you're the physician or the, you know, practitioner that you're seeing is a certified or, um, you know, board certified clinician would be important. Um, I suspect that we're going to see more of that happening, right? That there's going to be licensing or whatnot if it's a truly uh, only virtual platform. Um, but maybe for the time being, it, you know, going somewhere that has a clinic, like a physical clinic too. So you have those resources, um, meaning if you needed to come in for an exam, that that's available too. Another thing that I was really excited to read about when I was researching your work is the conversation opening up about transgender hormones and how, because that is something that now we need to factor into hormone therapy. Opening up that conversation, like what are the concerns for transgender individuals taking estrogen or testosterone? Well, probably the important place to start and, and maybe I'll just briefly, in, in, in case some of your listeners aren't familiar with transgender care, transgender people, you know, transgender people are people that are born with a um, their sex assigned at birth or recorded at birth that's not congruent with their gender identity. And we, when we look at the components that make up who we are, 
Um, gender identity is the most important for defining what our gender is. And so that's, you simply have to ask somebody, they know what their gender identity is. So a transgender, like a transgender man or male would be somebody that was born as a female assigned at birth and now identifies as a male. Um, the kind of clinical diagnosis or definition is something called gender dysphoria, um, which means like being kind of upset or dysphoric about that incongruence between your sex assigned at birth and your gender identity. And the goal for treatment is to relieve that dysphoria. Not all transgender people are dysphoric. Some are just fine. And not all transgender people seek treatment beyond kind of identifying um, or kind of expressing themselves as the identity that they uh, feel they you know, that they are. Um, but for those that have dysphoria and want to seek gender-affirming hormone therapy, um, you're, you're right, it's important to evaluate those risks associated. So for a transgender male, they'll be doing a masculizing um, hormone like uh, testosterone, and a transgender woman or a female would be on a feminizing hormone like estrogen. So similar to what we do for all of our patients on um, hormone therapy, looking at risk factors like cardiovascular disease, blood clot, those type of things. Um, but maybe similar to menopausal hormone therapy, across the board, gender-affirming hormone therapy um, appears safe. And more than that, it's truly life-saving for somebody that experiences gender dysphoria because the amount of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, just all of the complexities that um, are rooted really in the discrimination and kind of social pressure. So I want to make sure it's clear that transgender people aren't innately depressed and anxious. There's a lot that goes into that and a lot that is you know, really caused by our society and us in healthcare, you know, discrimination, those type of things. But um, that degree of uh, dysphoria can be debilitating to somebody and providing gender affirming hormone therapy is life changing. So that kind of trumps the risk benefit ratio when we're talking about it. And you're going to do what you can to be able to get that person the treatment that they need. Do you find that a certain age is better if, if this is something they discover they want to do, and I know this is very individualized, yeah, is it better to start the process with the younger, the better, or is it okay when you're older and you've, this is something you've always felt and you want it to do. And now you've come to a time in your life where you're like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Is there a certain age that's better to do that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head at the beginning that it's it's going to be really individualized. Um, and because of all those stressors and pressures and, and whatnot, um, a person acknowledging the time that makes sense for them um, because they'll need support and they'll, you know, social support and all of those type of things. And, um, and so, it, again, it's going to be when they feel ready. With a transgender female to male who's been on testosterone, they mm -hmm. still have uterus, they still have ovaries. Can they mm -hmm. expect anything around that menopausal age? Will they go through mm -hmm. any symptoms? Yeah, they could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, during, you know, during perimenopause, especially if you're on high doses of testosterone, that could cause some more abnormal bleeding or kind of unanticipated bleeding. So, um, you know, it's, 
healthcare practitioners, it's important to ask about those things and provide either a progestin or some type of treatment that's going to help with the bleeding. Um, but for the hot flashes, night sweats, or other symptoms, there are, are some treatments. It does get challenging because you're not going to give them estrogen if they're on testosterone, but um, it may be kind of a combination of things that you try. That's so good to know. I feel like we've talked about so many things. Yes. Thank yeah. you for being so flexible. We're like jumping from here to here. Yeah. yeah. No, I love it. This is yeah. great. But Such I important. Think it's, so, it's so important. Yeah. yeah. For people to hear this. With women who are kind of having that aha moment and they're saying, I think I'm starting menopause. Where, what would you suggest? Can they go on the North American Menopause Society website and kind of start doing their own research? Where would be the first yeah. place you would suggest they go? I think that's a good place to start because if you just Googled it, there's so much out there. Some of it's really reliable and helpful and some of it's misleading. And I think fueled by an industry that you know, filled a need post women's health initiative, women needed treatment and they filled that need, but now may be driven by, um, things like profit. And, and so I just, you know, I'd want to make sure that women are getting uh, evidence-based, really helpful information And the North American menopause society is going to be a great place to start. And I think I have one more question. Oh, sure. I have a lot yeah. more, but, um, <laughs> With when you know, we have a lot of listeners that are postmenopausal, and they're like, mm-hmm. been there, lived through it, to mm-hmm. tell the tale. But they're mm-hmm. still having like kind of a hot flash now and again, or they're having trouble sleeping. A lot of them have insomnia. Mm-hmm. Do you? What would you suggest for them that they maybe not want to go on hormone therapy because they're pretty much postmenopausal? Are yeah. Can you suggest anything for them? Yeah. Absolutely. And there are a lot of things, you know, after you've completed or gone through the menopause transition that continue, um, sleep can be an issue. Vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse are extremely common. Um, so talking with their healthcare practitioner about treatment options like a low-dose vaginal estrogen, which doesn't carry the same risks as systemic hormone therapy and, and can be continued really indefinitely. Um, sleep is, is so important. You know, uh, we've done some uh, studies looking at the association of sleep and sexual functioning, um, you know, I say that out loud and I'm like, yeah, of course that makes sense. If I'm tired, I'm not going to be interested in sex, but we've been able to show in studies that there is a link there. Um, So if women are noticing um, sexual issues and sleep issues, they need to really address both of those. And one of the things we've seen is that kind of historically, really across the board in medicine. Um, we've not done a good job of studying women in particular. Really up until 1990, most uh, studies were done almost exclusively on men or male um, animals or um, you know basic science studies like that and extrapolated to women, which means uh, the presentation, the treatment, the evaluation of certain things like sleep disorders may be skewed to studies in men specifically like, uh, for example, sleep apnea. I I wonder if you both have heard of sleep apnea. It's a pretty common thing. Um, But we see in women, they tend to have insomnia and daytime fatigue and may not have the other kind of classic symptoms of sleep apnea. And we're probably not screening and finding that enough to be able to treat them. Um, And so I guess that long-winded response is make sure you get in to talk to your healthcare practitioner if you're having sleep issues um, to see if there's something maybe underlying that's going on, but that they can give you some tools to help out with that. And you, you brought up, um, 
vaginal dryness, low libido. And I know, and I want... The genitourinary syndrome and menopause. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what that involves? Yes. Uh, absolutely. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because this is another one of those areas that I think, like, where do we talk about it? Where have we seen it in the media or whatever? I, d- I don't know. Like, how do women learn about this? And I think what I've seen a lot is that I think women just think vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse is par for the core. Like, that's what happens when you get older and just live with it. When in the reality, you don't have to live with it. And some don't even connect it with menopause because oftentimes those changes don't happen until a couple of years after you've gone through menopause. And so think it's something else or just aging or whatnot. So it, we can see it like two to three years after that, that final menstrual period. But um, it not only it causes vaginal dryness and pain with intercourse, which, I mean, those are super important and need to be addressed, but it can also cause um, uh, urinary urgency, like feeling like you have to pee all the time, um, as well as increase your risk of urinary tract infection. So for those women that are listening and they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm postmenopausal and I've had three urinary tract infections this last year, vaginal estrogen may be the, the best option for you after you know an exam and discussion with your physician. But um, there's a lot of different vaginal estrogen products. There's even a vaginal uh, kind of androgen. It's DHEA. It's more similar to testosterone. It's called Interosa. Um, that's really effective at treating those symptoms too. So um, I encourage women to consider doing those. And uh, important point, you should never have pain with intercourse. So if you're having pain, something's going on and get evaluated for it. So is the, you said Interosa, is that mm-hmm. a prescription? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prescription. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And I guess to your point, um, you know, the, all of the things I spoke about, the vaginal estrogens and the vaginal DHEA are prescriptions, but there are over the counter treatments that women can use. Um, lubricants are what you would use with intercourse, both on you and your partner. Um, but then vaginal moisturizers um, are developed or have been developed to for women to use regularly. So, like a facial moisturizer every couple of days. Um, and that can be over the counter. It's non-hormonal and for mild symptoms that works great for symptoms yeah I'm so glad you brought up the part about the urinary tract infections because mm-hmm. someone I know in their in their 70s their doctor was started to experience UTIs yeah and the doctor said you need a vaginal yeah. cream and her response well I'm not having sex I don't need a vaginal cream so yeah. I will tell her yes you do <laughs> yeah and, and that's why they renamed it to the genitourinary syndrome of menopause because it brings in both the genitourinary stuff but also kind of you know the vaginal stuff makes it impossible for us to pronounce it makes sense. I know. <laughs> makes sense but yeah GSM. we'll just call it GSM there you go GSM when you're looking it up online and we'll have all of these in the show notes too we, we link everything to the show notes and and you've actually Lovely. sent us a few reports that were wonderful that we'll yes, also link in the show notes great, great. Check out. the estrogen um the vaginal estrogen cream would that be daily every day they would use it um it's twice weekly Okay. Yeah, for the the cream, the tablet, um, and the capsule, which are all inserted into the vagina. Um, then there's a vaginal ring um, that stays in for three months. It, usually, you'll, it, that doesn't work as well if you've had a hysterectomy because it kind of stays at the top of the vagina near the cervix. But that's a great option for women that forget to do, you know, 
twice weekly, that's a really weird frequency. And if you're busy and doing other things, the S ring can be really helpful. Would you go into the doctor to have a new one put in? Okay. Okay. Or uh, you could, you could. Oh, okay. um, I care for a lot of older women with uh, urinary tract infections that use the S ring. And so they'll come in every three months and we'll do that. But many women feel comfortable. Um, you know, it's kind of like inserting a tampon or if you've used diaphragms in the past, but it, you know, that's one of the factors that you'll work with your doctor to figure out, yeah, that makes sense for me. Or maybe I'll do like a tablet that has an applicator and I can just insert it. Dr. Kling, we want to thank you so much. You know, for our listeners, it is so hard to get into a room with an expert who knows so much. And the fact that Dr. Kling took all this time to answer our questions, we truly appreciate it. We value your, your time and your information. So thank you. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you, ladies. We want to thank Dr. Kling so much. That was so much useful, important information, things that I did not know, had never heard of, and she could answer every question. It was amazing. And also the genitourinary menopause. I mean, it, it is really amazing, these things that happen to women, and we didn't have names for them. We didn't know what was going on. And then there are names for them now. And also her work with people that are deciding if they want to be male or female and what they go through because you don't understand or maybe you don't think about um, that a woman who might be transgender and transitioning to a, a man who may still have her ovaries or, you know, are still are, you know, organs are still gonna go through menopausal symptoms. We're just so lucky that there's somebody that has enough brain width <laughs> to handle all of that information. Um, I, I just was so thrilled with all of this. Just and her such, advice. And so yeah. wonderfully gracious in her time and yes. said, you know, anything that, you know, you want me to do after. She just couldn't have been more gracious. And we find that in the community. We you know, do. The yeah. experts in the field really want to help us get the information out. Yes, absolutely. They just want to help everyone, you know, with your questions that have been ignored for a long time or just had never been addressed. Make sure, guys, that you enter our giveaway this week. You might win some great products from Woman S. And if you leave your email address on the website, you will also be receiving our newsletter every other week, which has tons of information from midlife questions to ask the experts answers and menopause topics and games, you name it, new and noteworthy. You never know what's going to be on the newsletter. So make sure to check that out. Check out, if you want to see this live, check out our YouTube channel, Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Thanks guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you were left, I can't even think that anybody was left with any questions, but in the off chance you were, please make sure to email us at hotflasheskooltopics at gmail.com and we will try to get the answers for you. Have a great week and we will talk to you next time. Bye.